You're listening to Design Tomorrow. Computer, this is Lieutenant Commander Data. Please access all Starfleet command orders to starships, star bases, and colonies for the last six months. Working. Startling. Quite extraordinary, in fact. Direction unclear. Please repeat request. That was not a request. I was simply talking to myself. A human idiosyncrasy triggered by a fascination with a particular set of facts or sometimes brought about by senility or used as a means of weighing information before reaching a conclusion or as Thank a... Thank you, sir. I comprehend. Please specify how you would like to proceed, sir. Please continue with record scan. That scene from Star Trek The Next Generation that you just heard was filmed almost 30 years ago, when the idea of a talking computer was pure science fiction. I mean that in the truest sense, as something theoretically possible, just not yet. And that's where the irony in that scene becomes clear. There isn't just one talking computer. There are two. One is Data, the Pinocchio of the series, the android who wants to be more human. The other is the computer, computer with a capital C, the disembodied, ship-wide brain who will answer any question, any time, with its natural, albeit detached, voice. Just don't expect any small talk. The scene is funny because Data realizes he's been talking to himself. A human idiosyncrasy, he says, and the ship's computer can't tell the difference between that and a query. Of course, that doesn't really make much sense, does it? I mean, surely a computer that is listening all the time and is able to reply to direct queries would necessarily be able to distinguish between someone talking to themselves and someone asking it a direct question. And yet, in this scene, the computer's confusion almost sounds like annoyance, as if to say, hey, I'm a tool, not your friend. Well, here we are, some years later, and science fiction has become reality. We have talking computers, computers very much like the computer of the Enterprise, embedded in machines and surfaces, distributed throughout our environment, ready and willing to answer our questions. But unlike the Enterprise's computer, these have a more personal agenda. They've been designed to deliver on the promise of science fiction, that's for sure. But in the passing decades, society's expectations and intent for the voice interface have changed. It seems we don't want a computer we can talk to. We want a computer we can talk with. One word, but such a big difference. Today, I want to talk about the voice interface and how feelings, things like fear, loneliness, trust, and desire play just as much of a role in the way these machines work than do databases and code. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler.
Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. So that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Hey, Josh. Turn on the living room and dining room lights, open the garage doors, and open the shades downstairs. The lights are now on. Opening the shades and the garage doors. You can talk to Josh and ask him to do various tasks. Josh makes your life at home easier. Well, such is the marketing copy for Josh, who is a voice-activated home automation system. Sophisticated AI for the luxury home, they say. Artificial intelligence, as unique as the home it runs. Now that's interesting. It seems that AI voice interfaces have become so common that there's room in the market for one just for the 1%. We've got Alexa, Siri, Google Assistant, Cortana, Bixby, and they've got Josh. Now some friends and I were talking about Josh a while back, and one of them said to me this, All that ingenuity, all that disruption, and who does it serve? Why not use that same energy to solve starvation or avoid war? The thing about any design problem is that you can only empathize with the end user for so long before you have to start thinking about what's really important to everyone. Food, water, shelter, safety, the basics. People who can afford servants, whether real or artificial, have left the world we live in behind. So let them go. I want to help everyday people just live. He made a good point. That we humans need help from one another just to live may seem like a subsistence barrier, a minimum level of existence that the future by necessity must leave behind. But I'm not so sure. Cooperative existence is existence. Life, at its most basic, yields meaning the likes of which even the most sophisticated technology cannot. It's the truth. Epiphanies are had in the shower, not while dismissing notifications. To pursue that, just living as a designer or from any discipline should be the end, not the means. My friend's further point about empathy is worth a bit more depth, too. He says you can only empathize with the end user for so long before you have to start thinking about what's really important. And yet, that seems to be exactly what doesn't happen. Good design requires empathy. That seems to be a basic fact. And so it follows that in the case of designing a voice interface like Josh one must spend more and more time in the headspace of the sort of person who will hand his or her life over to Josh. And actually, the operative word should be can, 
the sort of person who can hand his or her life over to Josh, the sort of person for whom just living is taken care of and paying for home automation is even possible. In other words, the elite, which makes for a pretty decadent feedback loop, doesn't it? If shelter, food, water, and other basic needs are never in doubt, then the perspective and problems of those for whom they are in doubt are never seen, understood, or valued. Which means, of course, that those problems remain unsolved. And that's just the baseline problem with the way that voice interfaces have made their debut in our reality. The world of Star Trek was a post-scarcity world. Where access to the basics is never in question, there's room for ubiquitous artificial intelligence, but in a world very much acquainted with scarcity, I think not. There's never a shortage of new tech things that provoke the same old question, why this and not that, wherein this is a luxury and that is a need. And let's be honest, technological criticism is by its nature a dark art, It acknowledges the wonder and beauty inherent in creating technology, but by way of offering critique, it spends more time immersed in the travail of our collective Frankenstein. It looks at the monster out of control, not the order of the laboratory from which the monster came. In other words, right now, I sit surrounded by the technology that makes it possible for me to record this, and you sit surrounded by technology that makes it possible for you to hear it. That all seems good to me, and it's the same foundation upon which the tech I'm likely to question sits. And so, to say that we're, quote, hopelessly hooked on technology is of course hyperbolic and stating the obvious. But the essay from which that quote comes deftly ties together the thinking of several other authors writing on a subject called technological habituation. This is where the second big problem with voice interfaces comes up. It's the thing I alluded to in the intro to this program, that voice interfaces are being designed to manipulate us emotionally. Now that essay, written by Jacob Weisberg for the New York Review of Books, provides an overview of four different books, two on the nature of human relationships mediated by digital technology, one on the civility or incivility of comments, And finally, another on understanding habit forming in product design. Now, I'll link to all of these in the show notes. But for me, the material devoted to explaining the role of habituation in current product design trends was the most interesting and disturbing. There does seem to be a meaningful, but often either glossed over or completely ignored difference between the sort of stumbled-upon habituation of social media like Instagram and the psychologically manipulative intent ascribed to it once it's firmly entrenched in culture. Now, it's obvious that Instagram's value is very much based upon how addictive it is, but I still question whether the addictiveness was intended. Was Instagram designed to be a honeypot, or was it designed to be a great photo-sharing app to which we happen to have become addicted? Now, at the time of its acquisition by Facebook, a $1 billion price tag was astronomical and unprecedented. Yet that value was based upon the assumption that such a large and passionate base of user addicts could somehow be monetized. What troubles me is that in product design and venture capital circles, addictiveness is not a problem. 
It's not seen as a byproduct of humans and technology that's worthy of study and cure, but as a virtue. So much so that more than a few experts are now paid to help software companies design better addiction engines. This new field is called Captology. The prefix, C-A-P-T, is an acronym of Computers as Persuasive Technology. The biography of its founder, B.J. Fogg, reads almost like a supervillain story, the slow corruption of genius over time, because he began as a graduate student in Stanford's Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute studying how computers can change people's thoughts and behaviors in predictable ways. It sounds benign enough, yet instead of using that study to help humans better understand and wield their technology, Fogg runs persuasion boot camps for tech companies. And I'm sure that plenty are willing to pay handsomely to learn the ways of this techno-opiate kingpin. That captology exists at all, and is a word that people, designers, use in earnest, not in the pejorative by critics, seems an especially dark term for society. Is captology at the root of our voice interfaces? You better believe it. Alexa, Siri, the Google Assistant, they're not really like Josh, designed to make our lives easier. Sure, they say they are, and in some ways they do offer convenience, but that's not their primary purpose. Building your home around Josh costs a lot of money, because what you're paying for is Josh, the home automation technology. But building your life around Alexa is comparatively cheap, because what you're getting is way less than what the company behind Alexa is getting. Behind the voice interfaces of the masses are massive companies who stand to gain far more than the scattered conveniences they offer us. But in order to get us to let them listen in on our lives, to learn us so well that selling us more things feels like a natural conversation, we have to believe that we're getting the better deal. We have to believe that we're being given luxury, that we've arrived at the future we were promised decades ago, that we have a friend in this voice that knows and understands us best, that we need it. Tristan Harris, a former captologist himself, calls for a more conscientious approach to product design. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. And that goal is the race for our attention. And the best way to get people's attention is to know how someone's mind works. And there's a whole bunch of persuasive techniques that I learned in college at a lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab to get people's attention. Let me give you an example of Snapchat. Snapchat is the number one way that teenagers in the United States communicate, and there's like 100 million of them that use it. And they invented a feature called Snapstreaks, which shows the number of days in a row that two people have communicated with each other. In other words, what they just did is they gave two people something they don't want to lose. Because if you're a teenager and you have 150 days in a row, you don't want that to go away. And so think of the little blocks of time that that schedules in kids' minds. This isn't theoretical. When kids go on vacation, it's been shown they give their passwords up to, to, up to five other friends to keep their snap streaks going, even when they can't do it. We have a temptation to think about this as oh, they're just using uh, you know, Snapchat the way we used to gossip on the telephone. It's probably okay. Well, what this misses is that in the 1970s, when you were just gossiping on the telephone, there wasn't a hundred engineers on the other side of the screen who knew exactly how your psychology worked and orchestrated you into a double bind with each other. If this is making you feel a little bit of outrage, notice that that thought just comes over you. 
Outrage is a really good way, also, of getting your attention. And if you're the Facebook newsfeed, whether you'd want to or not, you actually benefit when there's outrage. So we want to hit share and say, "Can you believe the thing that they said?" Outrage works really well at getting attention, such that if Facebook had a choice between showing you the outrage feed and a calm newsfeed, they would want to show you the outrage feed, not because someone consciously chose that, but because that worked better at getting your attention. The newsfeed control room is run by is not accountable to us. It's only accountable to maximizing attention. It's also accountable because of the business model of advertising. For anybody who can pay the most, to actually walk into the control room and say, "That group over there, I want to schedule these thoughts into their minds." You can precisely target a lie directly to the people who are most susceptible. And because this is profitable, it's only going to get worse. I'm here today because the costs are so obvious. I don't know a more urgent problem than this because this problem is underneath all other problems. It's not just taking away our agency. It's changing the notion, the way we have our conversations. It's changing our democracy, and it's changing our ability to have the conversations and relationships we want with each other. We need to acknowledge that we are persuadable. Once you start understanding that your mind can be scheduled into having little thoughts or little blocks of time that you didn't choose, wouldn't we want to use that understanding and protect against the way that that happens? We need new models and accountability systems. So that as the world gets better and more and more persuasive over time, because it's only going to get more persuasive, that the people in those control rooms are accountable and transparent to what we want. The only form of ethical persuasion that exists is when the goals of the persuader are aligned with the goals of the persuadee. We need a design renaissance, because once you have this view of human nature, well, imagine an entire design renaissance that tried to orchestrate. The exact and most empowering time well spent way for those timelines to happen. You know what Harris has to say both disturbs me and provides a bit of hope. On the one hand, though Harris's nudges are in the right direction, that he's immersed in an industry so bought in that a word like captology no longer connotes any cynicism means that they're probably not enough. That's the other hand. Can you change this from the inside? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure you can change it from the outside either. However well intended, minor changes to design details that value a user's time are, as Jacob Weisberg put it in that essay for the New York Review of Books, wildly inadequate to the problem. He went on to write that aspirations for humanistic digital design have been overwhelmed so far by the imperatives of the startup economy. As long as software engineers are able to deliver free, addictive products directly to children, parents who themselves are compulsive users have little hope of asserting control. We can't defend ourselves against the disciples of captology by asking nicely for less enticing slot machines. End quote. And no, we can't. We have to summon the courage and strength to get the hell out of the casino altogether. And if we can't even find our way to the door, if we have to ask Siri for directions, well, then we're in trouble. But I think we still have an inner compass we can rely on. I think we still know the right way to go, but we also know that it's the harder way. And so, what will determine whether we get there or not is how hard we're willing to work as designers and consumers. 
and perhaps more importantly, how long we're willing to wait for that future we grew up reading about until it's possible for everyone, not just a few. Well, friends, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to give it a rating and a review. You can email me any feedback you have at chris at designtomorrow.co or tweet me at designtomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. Thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. See you then. Oh, 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 o